Can y'all hear me? <clears throat> Should I talk louder? I'm good? Okay. So, <clears throat> the canon of Scripture, Old Testament. So, we are now in week three of our study, um, this Sunday school class, on Bibliology, which is the doctrine of the Scriptures. In week one, Pastor Ron walked through the syllabus <clears throat> and did an overview of what we'll um, be covering um, in this class. So, he talked specifically about the different forms of the Word of God, that is, the Word of God as a person, Jesus Christ, uh, the Word of God as speech by God, uh, those were God's decrees, God's words of personal address, <clears throat> God's words as speech through human lips, and God's words in written form, the Bible. Uh, then we touch briefly on some benefits of God's written words. So that brings us to today's class, week three, and we'll be covering the canon of Scripture, Old Testament. The canon of Scripture, Old Testament. <clears throat> so, what exactly is a canon? Uh, the word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, meaning a reed or a measurement. A reed or a measurement. So it refers to the rule or rod or standard by which something is measured. So this idea of a canon, um, a set of writings bearing unique divine authority for God's people, goes back to the very beginning of Israel's history. So a covenant document which defined the proper understanding of God, redemption and life was placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place of the tabernacle, setting it apart from the words and opinions of men. So there was a specific place where um, God's word, as it was inscripturated, was placed, which sort of became the spark of this, the canon, the Old Testament canon. Um, the idea of a canon is that the theological foundation of the Christian faith. So think about this. <clears throat> Without revealed words available to us, uh, God has no exercise or lordship as over his servants. Uh, we, would, we wouldn't have a sure promise of God's word of salvation to us, so God exercises rule through his revealed word. We know what God requires of us. We know what his word commands us to do. We know what he commands us to stay away from. We have the sure promise of salvation through the word of God, the canon. So it's important. <clears throat> Old Testament. Right. <clears throat> so the question is, what books make up the canon of the church? In answering this question, it's important not to confuse the nature of the canon with the recognition of certain writings as canonical. There's a distinction that we have to make. What does that mean? The legitimate authority of canonical books exists independently apart from them being personally acknowledged as authoritative by any person or group. The nature or grounds of canonicity is logically distinct from the history or recognition of canonicity. So, Bible is canon because God spoke, and it was written. So, I don't come along and say, oh, okay, this is canon, or um, I don't make it canon. It's canon by the fact that God spoke. <clears throat> James White, when he's talking in his um, debates, he uses these two terms. He says, canon one and canon two. Now, he's not saying a canon within a canon, which we've all sort of heard, but he says canon one and canon two. Canon one 
by the fact that God spoke, it is written for us. Canon 2 is the church's acknowledgement or recognition of those written words. So that's what he means by Canon 1 and Canon 2. It's the inspiration of a book that makes it authoritative, not human acceptance or recognition of that book. If God has spoken, what he says is divine in itself, regardless of human response to it. It does not become divine because we agree with it. So you see that distinction? Canon 1, Canon 2, God spoke its canon. The church recognizes what God has spoken and written, and it's, it's canon. So, the canon is not a result of the Christian church. That is an accusation um, that's always brought up against uh, Christians in the Bible. Um, Well, the canon came because some men were at a round table and they took a vote, and it was uh, was ten men, and it was whoever has the highest number of votes. James, raise of hand. Uh, Seven to three, okay, it's ten. Jude, raise of hand. Five to five. We'll come back to that next week. Peter, raise his hand. That's not what happened. It's canon because God has spoken it as canon, and the church recognized that. And so we'll walk through what that looks like for the church to recognize it as canon. Um, Okay, so again, the canon is not a result of the Christian church. The church has no authority to control, create, or define the word of God. It's actually the opposite. The canon creates, controls, and defines the church of Christ. The word says, having been begotten again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And this is the word of God, the good news that was preached to you. 1 Peter 1, 23-25. Okay, so canon 1, canon 2. Canon is canon because God spoke it, therefore it's canon. The church recognizes that. Okay, so um, I'm going to transition here to um, a little article that I sort of want to work through by Greg Bonson, who's an apologist and a philosopher. Um, And he says that the canon is not identical to special revelation. This is really good and helpful. In order for a book to be accounted canonical, it is necessary that it be inspired. However, while inspiration is a necessary condition of canonicity, it is not a sufficient one. So that may throw you off, but I'll explain. Otherwise, all of God's special verbal revelation would constitute the canon of Scripture. Yet this is not the case, as we can see for a couple of reasons. So he says, God spoke, but by the mere fact that God spoke, um, that's not, that is, it's right, but it's not sufficient for it to be canon. And I'll explain that. First, remember that not all special revelation was given in written form or subsequently committed to writing. Uh, there were many discourses by Jesus while on earth. Uh, John 21:25 says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Um, were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain all the books that it would be written in. So private revelation uh, to the apostles was also another example of God speaking but not being inscripturated. First uh, Corinthians 12, 4-7, Revelation 10, 4. Um, some unpublished messages in the New Testament prophets, First Corinthians 12, 20, 12 28. 
second Bonson says here, we must, not, we must note that not all those inspired messages which were reduced to writing have been preserved by God's providence for use by people through history, such as uh, the Wars of Jehovah, the Book of Asher, Paul's previous letter to the Corinthians. Uh, you see those in Numbers 21, Joshua 10, um, 2 Chronicles 9, 12, 1 Corinthians 5, so on. Monson um, says, therefore, we should say more precisely that the canon of, this, of the Christian church is constituted by those inspired writings which God has preserved for his people in all subsequent ages. So, all of that to say this. God spoke, it was inscripturated, it was written down and preserved, it's our canon. God spoke other things that haven't been written down and inscripturated. We don't, don't, don't have those things, obviously. But God spoke, it's written, preserved, and we have a canon. So that's all he's saying there. The canon that we hold in our hands is God's word, verbally spoken, written down, and preserved. Okay? All right, so now into why you're here. Canon, Old Testament. <clears throat> so the canon of Scripture is... Uh, Old Testament is a list of all the books that belong to the Bible. Why is this important? First of all, to subtract or add from, add to God's word would be to prevent God's people from obeying him fully. What that means is commands that were subtracted would not be known for the people, and the words that were added might require extra things of the people which God did not command. Deuteronomy 4.2 you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So we have what we have for obedience as revelation from God. If something were left out of it, we would be missing um, some of God's words to us, and we wouldn't be able to have his full revelation, to obey his full revelation. If something were added to it that um, we're not supposed to be there, we find ourselves obeying uh, other things or traditions or whatever else. So because this is the exact determination of the extent of the canon, Scripture is extremely important. If we are to trust and obey God absolutely, we must have a collection of words that are certain, certainly God's word to us. If there are any sections of Scripture that we have doubts about whether they are God's word or not, we won't consider them to have divine and absolute authority, and we won't trust them as much as we trust God himself. So God's word is the outworking of his character. His words can be trusted because they're God's words, and God can be trusted. So we can't separate God from his word. Um, he has spoken to us by his word. <clears throat> okay, so I hit on that point already. So, where did this idea of a canon begin, or this idea of the people of Israel preserving a collection of writings um, from God? Scripture itself bears witness to the development of the canon. Uh, the earliest collection of written words of God was the Ten Commandments. So, the Ten Commandments of the Covenant, um, according to Philip, Phillips, which is another uh, theologian. Uh, the Ten Commandments thus formed the beginning of the biblical canon. So let me have someone read Exodus 31, 18. 
gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone of the idol. So the tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And then Exodus 32, someone mind reading this for us? Thank you. <clears throat> so these tablets were deposited into the Ark of the Covenant <clears throat> and, constituted, and constituted the terms of the covenant between God and his people. So this collection of absolutely authoritative words from God grew in size through the time of Israel's history. Moses himself wrote additional words to be deposited beside the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Deuteronomy 31, 24 to turn. 26. When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in a book to, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book, these writings I've just written, this book of the law, and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So what we're building here is how we got this Old Testament canon. So writings were set beside the Ark of the Covenant, and preserved for the people of God. Norm? The uh, Exodus references, can you go back to the first names? Yes. 32 or 3118. Sorry. <clears throat> and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of a testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. <clears throat> So they, um, the immediate reference to our Deuteronomy 31 passage here is the book of Deuteronomy, but other references to writings by Moses show us that the first four books of the Old Testament were by him as well. Um, we see that in Exodus 17, Exodus 24, Numbers 33, Deuteronomy 31. Now, after the death of Moses, Joshua also added to the collection of writings um, of the words of God. Uh, someone mind reading Joshua 24 for us? And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terabits that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Okay, again, this, this is a, a constant idea. This sanctuary of the Lord, Ark of the Covenant, near the Ark of the Covenant. So again, God spoke in different ways, but again, these writings were stored up in a specific place, which became to be developed as the canon. <clears throat> so this is interesting. Um, Joshua adds to these writings of Moses in light of the fact that we don't take away or add to Scripture uh, that God gave his people. Joshua must have been convinced that he wasn't taking it upon himself to add to the written words of God but that God himself has authorized his added writings. So again, God is the one adding to these, these books. He's the one adding to the canon. Later, others in Israel, usually those who fulfilled the office of prophet, wrote additional words of God. <clears throat> First Samuel. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship 
and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Again, he laid it up before the Lord. Second um, Chronicles twenty thirty four. Someone would mind reading this for us. And the rest of the Acts of Jehoshaphat, from first to last, are written in the Chronicles of Jehu, son of Hanani, which are recorded in the books of the kings of Israel. Again, recorded in the books of the kings of Israel. And we have those books, first and second kings. Okay, I'll come back to that. <clears throat> and, and we see this in other places, too. Where am I? Um, so, St. Chronicles uh, 2034, St. Chronicles 2622, and Second Chronicles 3232, and then also Jeremiah 30, verse 2 as well. I know this is where the handout would have been helpful. I'm sorry. But next week. <laughs> So, again, um, we're building a case. Things written were set in a specific place, which became canon, as God commanded and it was inscripturated for us. So the content of the Old Testament canon continued to grow until the time of the end of the writing process. So if we date Haggai to around 520 B.C. and Zechariah to around 520 to 518 B.C., and Malachi to around 435 B.C., it gives us an around-about date of the last of the Old Testament prophets. So roughly matching this period are the last books of the Old Testament history, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther. So it's going to get academic, but bear with me. So Ezra went to Jerusalem in 458 B.C., and Nehemiah went to Jerusalem from 445 B.C. to 433 B.C. Ezra was written sometime after the death of Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus, um, in 465 B.C., and a date during the reign of Artaxerxes from 464 to 423 B.C. is likely, or around about that time. Thus, around 435 B.C., there were no more additional writings to the Old Testament. So, all that to say, we can date the books um, with history in the time that, uh, uh, that the writings ended by specific events throughout Old Testament history, which brings us to a conclusion that this is the time that the last books were written in Israel's history. <clears throat> I had a map here that's probably not helpful at all because you can't see it. But um, anyway, this map sort of shows um, chronology or timeline and when in our Bibles we have the last books um, listed and when um, specific books were written. So our Bible of course isn't, our Old Testament isn't listed chronologically. Okay? Um, and so this is just showing what that should look like if we were to list those books in chronological order. Um, and I can get this to you if you want it. It's, it's, it's helpful on this. I know, I know. I'll add this to the handout next week. <laughs> One with the big map and then my notes. Um, <clears throat> okay. Where am I? Question? Yeah. Is, is that, um, arranged in, in the order of written that, that it's talking about or the, uh, when they were written? Like when they were, like, actually popular? In our Bible or on my map here? On the map. Like, is, is it sort of, like, um, I guess the article is this. So, like, the, the events that are covered in the scripture, like, have right. a timeline 
And is this following the timeline of the answer, or is that the timeline of when they were written? This is the timeline of, well, see a question. Um, events. So, Israel and, or Ezra and Nehemiah, but it, 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 I was quoting when they actually went into Jerusalem. And so this would be sort of how we have our books listed, and this would be the events of those books, and it's sort of merging them both. And that's why I probably sort of confused them, but the top is sort of um, how we have them listed. The bottom is those events as they happen um, historically. <clears throat> Right, okay. right. Not when they were written, or when they were right. Bible. Right, right, okay. right. Sorry. Sorry for the confusion. Yes. <clears throat> okay, where am I here? I lost my place. <clears throat> okay, so the later history of the Jewish people were recorded in other writings, extra-biblical writings, um, like the books of Maccabees, but these writings were considered worthy to be included in the collection of God's words to his people. Um, and we'll talk about um, the Apocrypha and those other books as well. So the second point I want to make here is the cessation of the Old Testament prophets found in extra-biblical writings. <clears throat> when we turn to Jewish literature outside of the Old Testament, we see that the belief of that divinely authoritative words from God had ceased. And it's actually shown in several different extra-biblical um, Jewish writings or literature. First, um, we'll look at uh, the book of Maccabees. <clears throat> um, so I'm, I'm going to drop some names and dates here, and again, it's going to get technical. I'm sorry, without my handout, it gets sort of, it's hard to follow. But again, stick with me. So the Maccabees were Jewish leaders who led a rebellion of the Jews against the um, Seleucid dynasty from 175 B.C. to 134 B.C. The books of 1 and 2 Maccabees are early Jewish writings detailing the history of the Jews in the first century B.C. So in 1 Maccabees, which was written about 100 B.C., the author writes of the defiled altar. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place of the Temple Hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. So these writings um, could fit into what we would refer to as the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, so again, we're looking at extra-biblical writings that attest to the fact that there was no more word given to prophets to be inscripturated, okay? So, they apparently knew of no one who could speak with the authority of God as the Old Testament prophets had done. So, the memory of an authoritative prophet among the people was one that belonged to a distant past, um, and the author actually speaks of a great distress in 1 Maccabees 9.27. He says, Such as had not been since the time that the prophets ceased to appear among us. And speaking about this great distress. Again, he's pointing to the cessation of the Old Testament uh, prophets and writings that were inscripturated. Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian uh, born in AD 37, not long after Christ's crucifixion, said, from Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So there had been, in Josephus' viewpoint, no more words of God added to Scripture 
after 435 B.C. Okay? Rabbinic literature says something very similar in its repeated statement that the Holy Spirit, and specifically the Holy Spirit's function and inspiration, departed from Israel. After the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. Um, and that's in uh, the Tomid, uh, Yomah 9b, which is, again, um, ancient Jewish writing. Again, this is an ancient rabbinic Jewish literature that we see these things. So these writings, so writings after 435 B.C. were not accepted by the Jewish people generally as having equal authority with the rest of Scripture. So there's a distinction there when we look at the Apocrypha or we look at Book of Maccabees or all those writings within the Apocrypha from Old Testament canon and New Testament canon, which we'll talk about next week. So y'all with me? I know it's technical, but this is important to see and to make these distinctions. Also, in the New Testament, we don't have any record of any dispute between Jesus and Jews over the extent of the canon. That's important as well. So, apparently there was no, um, there was agreement between Jesus and the disciples on one hand and the Jewish leaders on the other hand. So they all recognized by their verbiage and by their conversation, I'm saying that this is scripture and the Jews are not disagreeing with Jesus when he says that. They're not saying, well, what about 1 Maccabees? Or what about um, the book of whatever? There seems to be some agreement there on those. <clears throat> so any additional writings to the Old Testament canon had stopped after the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. <clears throat> so this is confirmed by the quotation of Jesus and the New Testament authors from the Old Testament. According to one count, I don't know who counted, but somebody counted. Jesus and the New Testament authors quote various parts of the Old Testament scriptures as divinely authoritative 295 times. But not once do they cite any statement from the books of the Apocrypha or any other writings as having divine authority. Okay, that's really important. Never quoted any other books apart from what we have as having divine authority. That has weight. <laughs> now, it should be noted, because some people may say, well, what about Jude? Jude 14 and 15. And uh, him citing one Enoch. And what about Paul? And he posts the, um, the Greek authors in Acts 17. This is how you answer that. <laughs> Simple. These writings were cited and it means nothing more that they had a knowledge of those writings. Simple. That's it. You don't have to get into a deep conversation about these things. Paul knew who that author was, so he cited it. Jude knew about one Enoch, so he cited it. It's never cited. Any other, no other books besides what we have are cited with these words, God says, or Scripture says, or it is written. It's never introduced in that way those common phrases that would apply divine authority to those books. Jude and Paul quote those other writings. Quoting those other writings doesn't mean that they were anything else other than writings that had been written. It, it's just that simple. It just means that they had a knowledge of them. It should also be noted that neither one Enoch nor um, uh, Paul's quoted writings um, or the Apocrypha 
say of themselves that they are authoritative. So again, no book of the Apocrypha, no other writings are mentioned in the New Testament as having divine authority. Okay? I'm out in time. Right, so any questions before we move and look specifically at the Apocrypha and why you should not consider that as scripture? <laughs> any questions or comments? Right, right. It doesn't say in each of those, but um, as they reference the Old Testament, the correlation and the connection between the two shows that they are authoritative. So if, I don't know, if one, one Enoch were in the Old Testament and, and scripture read it, we would say, well, it, it's authoritative because it's in the canon. Um, but they aren't. So <clears throat> that's a good question, though. It's a good thought. Oh, right. Jew is canon, but not the right. So when you cite Enoch, this is canon, Jew, Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I see what you're saying. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Questions? Amber. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it it also gives you gives you this encouragement that what we have um, is necessary for life and godliness. So the Bible is not a book that tells us again how to build a spaceship or how to do a math problem. It tells us how to please God and how to live a life who God is and how to live a life that's pleasing to Him. So it's what we have is sufficient for the purposes for which they were given, as, as the confession says. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. Okay. We still got a bit more to cover here. So the Apocrypha specifically. How should we view the Apocrypha? Um, so the Apocrypha is a collection of books that are actually included in the canon of the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church, but excluded from the canon in the Protestant Church. These books were never accepted by the Jews as scripture but throughout the early history of the church, there was some division and divided opinion on whether they should be a part of Scripture or not. Um, it should be noted also that these writings, 15 books in all, are not found in the Hebrew Bible, but they are included in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is just a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Okay? <clears throat> so the earliest... Christian evidence is decidedly against viewing the Apocrypha as Scripture, but the use of the Apocrypha gradually increased in some parts of the church until the time of the Reformation.
So the fact that these books were included by Jerome in his Latin Vulgate um, translation of the Bible, which was completed around AD 400, gave support to the inclusion of the Apocrypha. So Jerome um, writes, he, uh, he translates a Bible, Latin Vulgate, takes a bunch of uh, Latin uh, scriptures and translates them into one Latin Vulgate. Um, Vulgate just meaning uh, vulgar, common language. And it's, it's this, <clears throat> in that book we have the Apocrypha, but I'll explain why it's there. Um, <clears throat> where am I at? So, because the Latin Vulgate was so accessible in later centuries, it gave more access to the Apocrypha. But the fact that the Apocrypha was excluded from the Jewish canon and other um, reasons, it, it generally lacking quotations from the New Testament, it led many people to have suspicion or to reject their authority altogether. So, for instance, um, the earliest Christian list of Old Testament books that existed today is by Melito, Bishop of Sardis, and he's writing about A.D. 170. And this is what he says. When I came to the east and reached the place where these things were preached and done and learned accurately the books of the Old Testament, I set down the facts and sent them to you. These are their names. <clears throat> Five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua the son of Nun, Judges, Ruth, the four books of the kingdoms, so first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, the two books of Chronicles, the Psalms of David, the Proverbs of Solomon and his wisdom, um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Job, the Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Twelve and the Single Book, so the um, minor prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Ezra, which includes Nehemiah. So in this list of writings, this is AD 170, Melito names all the books that we have in our Old Testament canon. So again, this uh, stands in contrast to these accusations against Christians in the Bible that, well, uh, Constantine did this and this person did that and that's how we got the books. Um, history shows we can actually have history that gives proof to the books that we have. <clears throat> here as early as 1 uh, AD 170. And notice that Melito didn't name any of the books of the Apocrypha, but he included all of our present Old Testament books except Esther. Uh, for some reason, there was doubt about the canonicity of Esther in some parts of the early church, but those doubts were eventually resolved in rather quickly, and the Christian usage eventually became uniform to the Jewish view, which had always counted Esther as part of the canon although it would be opposed um, by certain rabbis for their own reasons. Books of the Apocrypha, just in, in case you were curious. Um, 1 and 2, Ezra, uh, Tobit, Judas, the rest of Esther, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Baruch, including the Epistle of Jeremiah, uh, the Song of the Three Holy Children, not sure what that is, Susanna, Bell of the Dragon, Bell and, and the Dragon, uh, the Prayer of Manasseh, and one and two Maccabees. So if you ever read through any parts of the Apocrypha, um, it's, it's easy to see why in some areas it's not canon. There are uh, this gross abuses to the gospel, um, and it just does not agree with the rest of the scripture. 
And so it doesn't take long as you're reading through the Apocrypha to see why. There are some historical things that are helpful, um, but it's easy to see why we do not consider it as canon. Okay? <clears throat> also, concerning the canon, there are doctrinal and historical inconsistencies. Author E.G. Young notes, there are not marks in these books which would attest to divine origin. He says, both Judith and Tobit contain historical, chronological, and geographical errors. The books justify falsely the deception and make salvation to depend upon works of merit. Ecclesiastes and the wisdom of Solomon repeat a morality based upon um, usefulness, not, not Christ's righteousness as our salvation, Wisdom teaches the creation of the world out of pre-existent matter. That is easily to see why that's contrary to Genesis 1. Ecclesiastes teaches that the giving of alms makes atonement for sin. That's contrary to Scripture. In Baruch, it says that God hears the prayers of the dead. And in 1 Maccabees, there are historical and grammatical errors. So again, there are parts of the Apocrypha that are... Um, may be helpful, but it's not to be considered canon, and again, when you open it, it's pretty um, easy to see why. Okay, continuing with history. Um, it wasn't until 1546 at the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholic Church officially declared the Apocrypha to be a part of canon, with the exception of one into Esdras and the prayer of Manasseh. But, remember, that the Council of Trent was a response to the Roman Catholic Church, um, response of the Roman Catholic Church to the teachings of Martin Luther and the spreading Protestant Reformation. And it's interesting to note that the books of the Apocrypha, some of those books, actually support some of the Catholic teachings of prayer for the dead and justification by faith plus works, not faith alone. That is interesting and important to remember. Right, so there were um, underlying reasons for this acceptance of the Apocrypha. There's a context for it, okay? <clears throat> and that context was the time of this Reformation um, and their response to Martin Luther and the spreading Protestant Reformation. <clears throat> and affirming the Apocrypha as, as um, within the canon, Roman Catholics would hold that the Church has the authority to constitute a literary work as scripture, while Protestants held that the church cannot make anything scripture, but it only recognizes what God has already caused to be written in his own words. So it should be noted, again, that the Roman Catholics use the term, uh, I'm going to try to say this right, deuterocanonical, I think that's how you say it. Is that good? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> rather than apocryphal, so they use that word, rather than apocryphal, but they refer to these books. It, it's the same thing. They understand this to mean um, later added to the canon. That's why they use that term deuterocanonical rather than apocryphal, but it's the same thing, so don't be fooled by that. Okay, <clears throat> so does the church have the authority to determine what is canon or what um, should be recognized, simply recognized as canon? Um, I've answered that, but I'm going to answer it again. Think about this analogy. Can the church, does the church say this is canon, or does the church see and recognize something as being canon? 
A police investigator can recognize counterfeit money as counterfeit and can recognize genuine money as genuine. But he cannot make counterfeit money to be genuine, nor can he declare any um, counterfeit money as something other than what it is. Only the official treasury of the nation can make money that is real money. Similarly, only God can make words to be his very words and worthy of the inclusion in Scripture. So again, the church recognizes what can. It does not make something canon. <clears throat> so in conclusion on this, uh, the Apocrypha, uh, the writing should be rejected for uh, four main reasons. I do have that. This would have been on the handout, but it's here. <clears throat> One, they do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. So not even in the Apocrypha itself do they claim to be uh, divine, divinely authoritative from God. Two, they were not regarded as God's words by the Jewish people from whom they originated. That's very closely tied to one they don't themselves claim to be these divine words of God. Three, they were not considered to be scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. That's really important. And then four, they contain uh, teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Um, and, I mean, this subject of the Apocrypha and the Old Testament canon, it's a huge subject. That's a huge conversation. That's good. It needs to be had, but this is, I'm trying to just do an overview, and I'm sorry that it's so technical, and it's, it's, I know it's a lot crammed in, but I'm just trying to give you a general idea of Old Testament canon and why the Apocrypha is not in it. <clears throat> so we have to conclude that there are, um, these writings, the Apocrypha, are merely human words, not God-breathed words like the rest of Scripture. They do have value for some historical and linguistic research, and they contain a number of helpful stories about the courage and faith of many Jewish people during the period of the Old Testament um, or the intertestamental period, but they have never been part of the Old Testament canon, and they should not be thought of as part of the Bible. Therefore, they have no binding authority for the thought or life of Christians today. Okay? <clears throat> so I hope that's helpful and helping us sort of work through these things. <clears throat> In conclusion, I got done sooner than I thought I would. In conclusion, with regard to the canon of the Old Testament, Christians uh, today should not worry that anything needed has been left out or that anything um, that is not God's word has been included. Um, so a few verses, and we can just turn there, and whoever wants to read, whatever, we can do that. But... um. First, let me have someone turn to Luke 24, 27. And if you want to, just raise your hand. Luke 24, 27. All right, Corrine, I'm not doing that because she's my wife. I saw her hand. Um, Matthew 19, 5. All right. <laughs> Scott, and then um, Jeremy, you can get Matthew 12, 24. And then Matthew 24, 15. Josh. And then Luke 17, 26, and 27. Robert, and then I saw a hand. Amanda, you can get Luke 17, 28 to 29. <clears throat> Is everybody there? Know what you got? Remember? Okay, so this will be sort of 
I'm going to say something and then point to you, and then you read. If you don't read right after I say it, you're going to be like, what's the connection? So you got to be on it, okay? All right. So, who was number one? Luke. All right. All right, love. Don't let me down. All right. Luke 24, 27. Jesus believed the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and were prophetic of him. Go. Okay. So again, Jesus references the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, another way of saying the Old Testament, as prophetic of him. All right. Who has Matthew 19? Five. All right. All right. Okay, so that's a reference. Um, Jesus is authenticating people and events there, specifically Adam and Eve. He references an event and specific people in the context of Matthew 19.5. Um, he also recognizes Jonah, Matthew 12.40. Uh, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, thank you. So again, Jesus authenticating people and events. Jonah was an actual person who was actually in the belly of uh, the beast or fish. Um, Jesus authenticates Daniel, Matthew twenty four fifteen. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Jesus authenticates Noah in the flood, Luke 17, 26, and 27. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jesus authenticates the destruction of Sodom, Luke 17, 28, and 29. Thank you. So again, Jesus authenticates people and events. Um, you do not see this with regard to the Apocrypha or um, any of these other books that are floating around. There's always some new thing that people are saying, well, this should have been in the Bible, that should have been in the Bible. Um, it shouldn't be. <laughs> and we have reason to, to believe that. Um, and again, this subject is something that we have to uh, revisit because we forget it. I've, I've gone through this in the past. I've forgotten it. This has just been a good reminder again to um, stir again our apologetics and giving a defense for this stuff, but also the encouragement of our own hearts. We have the Word of God, which is for life and godliness. Um, it is given to us, and it is sufficient for that purpose. Okay? <clears throat>